Welcome to Nostalgia Ultras, the football podcast, living off past glories. I'm your host, Steve McGovern, and I'm joined by Ben Jarman. How are you, Ben? Hello, very well, thank you. How are you? Uh, not too bad, thanks, man. It's great to have you on. People might know you from uh, Fulhamish. No, and, uh, and your tweets about uh, Spanish football and all things athletic club. I can't actually, we're missing a trick because from the time we're recording in a couple of weeks, I think it's like the 10 year anniversary of that game against Juventus. We should have done that. We should we should have done an episode on that instead because oh, that yeah. is probably my, f- it might be up there with like my favorite football memory, like non-Ireland football memories. Like it's it's got to be like in the top like two, one or two. <laughs> what a game it was and people still bring that up a lot actually and you see it occasionally every now and again it just resurfaces uh that goal um Roy Hodgson's interview afterwards which actually gets downplayed quite a lot but is really quite emotional and he never thought that we'd get that far Palace actually pushed out a little bit of content for it this past week and Roy does a, a really good interview with them so it's definitely worth checking out like it is it is crazy to like look back on and and you're right because other people do like non full of people do remember it like i know i was at a like a blizzard event mm. and Philippe Beauclair was there and they were asked all the panelists uh, like their their favorite like moment or memory or something and he referenced that game um, yeah. which is crazy like as like man he must have like been asked like so many like amazing moments in football and like like that one was the one he picked out um, I remember distinctly having a chat with Philippe Claire at the Football uh, Supporters Federation Awards this December. I got introduced to him by Sammy from Fulhamish and I didn't know what he looked like in person, which is probably good because if, if I did, I would have wilted. The first thing he spoke to me about was that Juventus game as well. And then we had went on to have a, a lo- nice long chat about Marseille and how it's, um, it's probably given a bit of a bad rap when it shouldn't be, which was nice. Uh, what, what's your Marseille take? Well, Marseille gets a lot of negative press, especially in like mainstream media. But if you ever go to Marseille and you sort of dig beneath the surface, a la a Mundial magazine article, you'll probably find it's like a, a really nice mismatch of cultures. You get Algerians in there, some Moroccans, um, a lot of North African influence. And if you go out to have a, a coffee or, you know, just a little bit of food, then you can quite easily get chatting to people in those little cafes and if you walk around on the streets people will nod at you they'll smile at you and I actually think that the rep it got in 2016 especially from the English press was actually quite mislaid and having spent time there during that Euros actually was completely opposite to how the press had laid it out it was a very welcoming city the people are very warm and there's actually a little bit of culture in there that doesn't sort of spread into the rest of France and I think that that's what people could be a little bit nervous of but I don't know I just I just love Marseille and I loved every second of being cool we're obviously here to talk about marcelo bielsa yeah and ben i know you love marcelo bielsa you also love athletic club de babao yeah so i can only assume putting two and two together that your love for the two of them came while <laughs> he was managing was it which one came first was it the chicken and the egg was it bielsa or bilbao that came first it was to be perfectly honest it was always bilbao um as a an englishman obviously when you see a spanish team with an english name that is inherently English history. It's sort of one that you wanted to look into a little bit more. And when I found out about Pentland, who was uh, Athletic Bilbao's most successful manager, I wanted to follow the team a little bit more. And that was around about that time when Bielsa was actually appointed. So before then, Athletic had been the sort of club that, as as I said, it had inherently English roots and it played in an inherently English way and it was incredibly direct. It was was basically all of it was about work rate. There was very little flair and that was from a Spanish team. You'd never expect that. 
Um, and as I started to follow them more and more closely, that was when the influence of Bielsa came in. And I remember probably about six months before he was appointed, listening to World Football Phoning. And um, Tim, you have the mercurial Tim Vickery on there, who I could listen to for hours. And he was talking about Bielsa and about his intensity, his personality, where he grew up and how his sort of upbringing had an influence on the football. And then the two all sort of merged in together. And luckily, I followed Bilbao and Bielsa for a couple of years when he took them to two finals in in one year which is something they hadn't done for I think it was the best part of 20 years yeah I think we'll get into like why he goes to clubs like Bilbao and I should say athletics sorry because I know that no, that, no, that infuriates um the people in at the club it's like sporting Lisbon it's not sport it's sporting club but yeah. uh we'll get into all that but what what type of personality does he have because would you say like because you know they call him a loco which i don't think he likes but it also sounds kind of mean um, <laughs> but he seems like an incredibly intelligent person like i don't think somebody could manage the way he does without being intelligent and i mean his background is so interesting because i think like i can't remember exactly but like his brother and his sister were like it was one of them like a governor governor and one of them was like a, a minister i think actually yeah. one of them was like a minister uh, in the government and I was like wow like what's he doing in football like I'm always like I'm always amazed that like smart people get into football because I'm like yeah. what are they doing and initially he was a PE teacher and I think that's something that probably had a, a mold on his management style but before that he actually he had a pretty short playing career it only was about five or so years and he only ended up making around about 100 appearances, most of them for a couple of lower-ranked teams in Argentina. He was a he was a centre-half by trade. And when he played, he was quite a measured player, um, one that had studied the game extensively. But his personality is so intense, and I think that's probably mirrored in the way that he, all of his teams play. He's an obsessive. I think anyone that had probably tuned into Spygate which was last season where obviously he had spied on Derby County would know that he's a, a meticulous orchestrator of a knot of training sessions. He had, before he was given the athletic job, he met with the board of directors and had a PowerPoint for all 38 matches that Athletic had played the year before and what they'd done badly and what they'd done well and what he would change. It was also, Fernando Llorente would say that he had over 2,000 training sessions planned across the year for different situations. And to give you an idea of the, the obsessive nature that Bielsa has, there's probably two really good examples here. He believes staunchly that there are only 29 formations that you can have in football and around about the same number of um, playing styles. So he listens to that on a tape recording every single uh, morning on a, on a morning run. And there was a time when it was back in 2001 when he was Argentina manager. Basically, Argentina had put themselves in an army camp to train in and it was guarded by armed guards. They spotted Bielsa running around the, uh, the gardens. It's sort of like three or four o'clock in the morning in the pitch black, wearing really baggy tracksuit bottoms, a woolly hat. But what they didn't realise is that he was wearing headphones at the time, which was playing himself weirdly. And it got to a point where they were screaming and shouting at him and he wasn't listening to them. He basically came back and they had a gun pointed at his face during his morning run and he had to scream at the manager of Argentina before they shot him, which is pretty bonkers. It sounds very South American football. 
Yeah, it's, it's very. It's it's probably the prime example of South American football. Obviously, if if people here were hoping like not to hear tactics, they're going to be disappointed because I think you are very much you know a tactics person, and I definitely I wouldn't call myself very informed on tactics or anything like that. But I do enjoy a good tactical discussion. So I think this is like when it comes to Bielsa, this is one of the most important things to talk about. I think, and in, especially in terms of his his uh, personality and how it reflects yeah. his tactics as well. Because like you said, you mentioned there that he's an obsessive. Yeah. and like he seems very intense and i don't know how long i i would survive <laughs> under him as a, if i was a player there's um this uh, extract from uh, an article by enzo karima in El Arte de Futbol, where he says, Bielsa is an architect. He prefers his players moving and rotating constantly to achieve numerical overloads. He instructs his players to begin the team's build-up play from the back often, which results in rapid, incisive counter-attacks, even from deep. His teams always believe in retaining possession and breaking on the counter with pace. Marcelo Bielsa's hugely influential approach to football is undoubtedly revolutionary as he re-innovated the 3-3-1-3 formation to suit his way and his style of play. His loads there to yeah. pick apart. First of all, how on earth does he convey that without being fluent in English? I do not understand that. Like how how is he able to get like say Leeds or when he's in like I assume he doesn't speak French. So when he was at like Lille mm. and stuff like how does he get players to like understand exactly what he's doing? Before he takes the training sessions they're all um they're short monologues um beforehand which basically outlines what the session is what they're trying to achieve and how to achieve it, which is part of those dossier of over 2,000 sessions, as I previously mentioned. But I think the thing about Bielsa is he trains the... It sounds weird, but sometimes he'll train the forwards, the midfielders and the defenders at separate times. So each compartment of the pitch understands what to do. And within those training sessions, the players are almost... They're, they're given boxes to operate in. So the field of play is boxed out into even even small squares or or rectangles if you'd like and the players know what to do and how to operate within them a really cool video came out a couple of weeks ago cool makes it sound like it would be bre- like um, innovative and, and breathtaking but it's not he has there's like fireworks and like <laughs> explosions and stuff like that <laughs> No, basically what he's done is spray painted um, markings on the training pitch at Leeds and basically told players how to dribble at defenders and how to create space and overloads. And you can see the players, they just do the same exercise over and over again with him barking orders at them. I think back in your, um, your extract, you talk about permanent movement and rotation. And there was four key principles that Bielsa takes and wants his football to um, mirror. And those are concentration or so focus, permanent movement, rotation and improvisation. He'll overcoach in terms of shape, um, movement, transition, um, but he won't overcoach you in what to do in attacking situations, which I think is why you see players like Helder Costa for Leeds now or um, players like Oscar De Marcos for Athletic back in that run really starting to flourish because they are given the freedom to do what they want. And as you say, he brought back a formation that was basically completely outdated, um, modernised it, and then he will change players to suit that system. He won't ever change the system to suit the players. Yeah, on the formation, like I always assumed that he had actually come up with it. Like he had made this very, like, what's the word? Like it's, it's like very um, vertical. Yeah. But then... I read that. In fact, it was uh, Van Hal who kind of he he basically tweaked Johan Cruyff's three four three. Yeah, and he created the three three one three, which you kind of.
kind of see was it there's that there's that um formation that the lineup i think it's from the champions league final in 95 yeah it's gone around a lot online the last few years where it's like three at the back then he has a diamond yeah. in midfield and then he has three up top and it looks very like people who grew up with like 442 or even in the noughties with 4231 like it looks really odd so yeah it's just it's just strange that he's he's taken that and he's he's made it his own he's just a bit of a maverick in terms of those formations and i think a lot of his influence comes from Cesar Luis Menotti, who won the 1978 World Cup with Argentina. And a lot of those principles are tally with Bielsa's. And Menotti talks a lot about permanent movement and rotation and rotating the ball. And Menotti himself was, I think it's probably easier to describe him as a, as a genius in himself, in that he revolutionised the way Argentina played before that World Cup. And then Bielsa has built on that. And he revolutionised the way Chile played. And then Chile had un, uh, unparalleled success for, for that country after influence of Bielsa but that three that three three one three he would play at times or three 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 one uh, as it's sometimes listed is everything that Bielsa stands for I think because it it allows the press you know it allows you to trap the opposition in early um it gives you enough whip in terms of especially the back line because the back line doesn't set up as a as a traditional back three and I think that that's something we'll probably come on to talk about if we look at athletic in detail but he can he changes the way players play and it's a massive thing as part of this 3-3-1-3 that you see a trend and you're seeing it now with Calvin Phillips at Leeds in that holding midfielders almost always in this system reverted as a centre-half and they sit in the middle of that back three to start the breaks. I feel like this style of his, the, this tactical approach that he's taking it to like the nth degree, you know, it, there's a lot of talk about like the people he's influenced and basically they've gone and made it, you know, more pragmatic and yeah. then they've gone on to be more, like you referenced Chile there. Sampaoli then went and had like amazing success, you know, and, and generally speaking, he's not the one that, you know, reaps the rewards of his own innovation, yeah. um, ironically enough. Is he kind of trying to implement these in its, in its purest form, nearly, rather than say, okay, I'm going to come up with a more pragmatic style that might work? You know what I mean? Do you know what I'm getting yeah. at? Like, it's, it feels like he's he's really trying to, see, I, don't, I don't even know how to, like I said, trying to implement it in its purest form. Like, sometimes you see Pep Guardiola, when he knows his team yeah. is overmatched, he will, like, right we're going to play very boring or we're going to play very defensive mm. or we're going to play long ball if we absolutely have to. Whereas like Bielsa will definitely not do that. But he goes to the very extreme in how he wants his yeah. team to play. Yeah, well, I think that that comes from his upbringing because he was born at a time when and has lived through a dictatorship in Argentina and quite a fierce one at that. And I think a lot of people would describe Bielsa as an idealist and when you talk about an idealist, you obviously think of someone that has some sort of ideology or philosophy on the way the game should be played. And it would be an idea that you build upon. But actually, as you rightly say, Bielsa has got to a point where actually this this ideal and this philosophy of high intense football, breaking wide, breaking high and breaking fast has never left him, which is probably something you, you couldn't say for the likes of Mourinho who have had that once and then have gone completely the other way but Bielsa will never change I think it becomes more down to stubbornness and principle than it will be out of winning so him and Minotti basically share the same footballing influence I suppose in that when you ask people or, or when people list Minotti as their their influence they often list Bielsa as well and Bielsa is directly influenced by Minotti but neither of them have won the World Cup aside from Minotti's case but ne- 
neither of them have ever had massive success. The only success that Bielsa has had is winning uh, the Argentinian Championship. He's not won another major title. And actually, in a lot of clubs, he's he's failed when the big stage is in front of him. But I don't think that should rule or, or that should detract from the influence he has in, in football full stop, to be fair. Yeah, absolutely not. He's actually seems very scientific. Like it's almost like football is a mathematical equation because you referenced earlier, like all, he has, you know, his four key principles or he has, you know, like was it there's like eight ways to kick a football or, or yeah, you know, and there's 17 ways to put out a lineup and, and all these kind of things. So he's he's very clearly like thought of this he's massive. in a very scientific sense. Yeah. And, and hugely, uh, hugely um, superstitious as well in that. You'll see him pacing up and down his technical area, but one thing you'll never do is see him take more or less than 13 steps. 13 steps only, and he'll stop and he'll crouch. It, I think it's, it's obsessiveness, and I think that he gets wrapped up in it. So you see plenty of, of work um, written about Bielsa where they, they talk about long-term implementation. And actually, at Argentina, at Athletic, and at Leeds, he's had sleeping compartments built and fully furnished for him to stay and watch games he's an obsessive so on this tactical approach like i wonder if it's actually too regimented and it's it's very you know if you study it it's quite easy to identify because he has very much it's not like you know he wants players to depend on their individually individual ability to create moments it's very much here are your set plays here's how you're going to build up the ball from back to front yeah. Uh, here's how you're going to defend and we saw a few months ago when like Fulham played uh, Leeds yeah and Scott Parker I think we'll both agree as Fulham fans he's not a tactical genius but he him and his uh, staff were able to identify the kind of the varying the, yeah. the moves the very the various moves that they rely on and kind of pick leads apart like do you do you think there's a sense of him being too regimented or the plan being too regimented I think there's a sense of him being too stubborn but he has been known to use other formations, albeit very sparingly. When you when you look at Athletic in particular, he liked to use a four two three one, especially when they were trying to hold on to games. So there is an element of pragmatism to him, but not as much as you would see in someone like a Pear Pora, Jose, or other managers now. I, I do get it. I think like there is a huge amount of pattern to his play, and I think that's why he's never been hugely successful. That coupled with the fatigue that his players have off obviously with the intensity of his pre- his pre- pressing style, his training and his philosophy. I think there are two massively detrimental factors. One is that he's too stubborn to use a set number of players and, and two is that he runs them into the ground. And Bielsa fatigue really is a thing. As much as we'd like to say that he's, uh, his football is amazing and that he's had an influence on, on everything, the one massive detriment to Bielsa is that he just can't seem to step away from using the same group of players and, and uh, rotating well. Yeah, that definitely seems to be a problem. Like I actually, I was thinking earlier when I was uh, you know, researching for this podcast and I was like, that exact phrase came to my mind, Bielsa fatigue. Yeah. And I suppose we'll, we might as well get into it about, you know, athletic club and stuff like that now, because I think that was, that was when he, when he really came into the consciousness of European football, I know he had been Argentina manager, but yeah. this was when he really made a name for himself on this side of the planet. And I don't know, maybe there's something in, in the fact that like he always picks teams like like it's like Bilbao, Leeds, Lille, Lazio, all teams with L in their name for whatever reason. <laughs> um, but like, you know, he's not going to like, you know, Man United or Real Madrid or Inter Milan. It's it's always like these smaller clubs. So I wonder if it's like maybe it's the talent on offer or I, I don't know. What, what do you think? Like, why do you think that 
that fatigue like sets in and why does he always go for these kind of you know quote-unquote smaller clubs the smaller clubs thing i think you can probably relate back to where he grew up he grew up in rosario in in argentina it's a hugely working class community and if you look at all of those clubs we've listed there all of them have exactly that that same outlook and even chile who when he had taken over had just come out of a, another dictatorship and their football was a little bit huff and puff um they were all about grinding out results and he changed that completely and it wasn't long after them that I'm not saying he's a direct influence, but I'm sure that football had some sort of influence on Chile having a, a sort of mini revolution. But if we look in into his clubs in a little bit more detail, Lille, again, a massively working class part of France, um, hugely, from my experience anyway, I can be corrected on this, a uh, hugely underdeveloped part of France, uh, actually. Um, Lazio has big working class roots and some roots we probably shouldn't be touching on. Marseille, again, um, hugely working class. And then uh, Chile, obviously, a, 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 as we said, a, com- a country that was under strict military dictatorship. But then you look at Athletic, it's a club that basically proudly embodies its working class roots of the area. They're, they're staunchly proud to be Basque. Um, and you see it everywhere. There are Athletic flags draped out of every possible window, restaurants with Athletic flags flags out the front it's a support as that basically thrives from community and a sense of community at the club's heart you see when, when you walk to games at San Mamés if you ever get the opportunity to please please do you walk down the, the streets the small streets before the game around San Mamés and everyone's having a calimocho everyone is having a beer and everyone knows everyone it's so easy to to chat to people they all want to speak english with you they all want to talk to you about you know athletic they're still they're fiercely proud to support the club and i think it's a it's something you don't often see especially in england but not much on the continent and i think that that basically suits marcelo because what he wants to do is drum up the support of the, the players in the club and basically rally people together he is a sen- he is a guy that wants a sense of glue that everyone's pulling in the same direction and that people that go against that grain he will get rid of and you will see that in if we ever if we do talk come on to talk about it the failed reign at Lille towards uh, in 2017 he does ruffle feathers and if you don't pull the right way, he will get rid of you. In that second season with Athletic, they'd sold Javi Martinez to Bayern for a club record at the time. It was 40 million. And they were trying to get Llorente to sign a new contract and he wouldn't do it. So he throws him out, bearing in mind that Llorente almost single-handedly got Athletic to Europa League final. He just got rid of him. And then in terms of the fatigue... When you look at Athletic, they played 60 games in his first season. I think there were only 18 players that he used more than, I think it was like more than 60%. So if that stat makes sense. I don't know if you read the Nuno Espirito Santo um, interview in the Sunday Times this past weekend, but he actually had some very interesting stuff to say about like the use of small squads. Mm. And he just like, he refuses to use any more than the 19. So I, I don't know, like he, he seems to have kind of mastered it and i don't know maybe if bielsa maybe just runs them into the ground too much like they're like you said their style of play is very intense and by the end of the season i think their legs are just gone and they need a rest and in the championship as well it's like non-stop like it, there's like two games a week most of the time and yeah. it's it's extremely tough campaign to get through we might as well talk about bilbao in the sense that that was really like in terms of you know his time in europe that's probably been his best spell at any club like I said he reached two finals the Europa League and the Copa del Rey yeah. and this was my kind of introduction to 
Bielsa at the time I didn't really pay attention to who their manager was but it was so interesting when they beat Man United who had only just been in like in a Champions League final the year beforehand Mm -hmm. and they absolutely I never watched the game live at the time but I've watched highlights back and like when you when you see what they did to United like they tore them apart at Old Trafford and should have won maybe like four or five nil and Alex Ferguson afterwards is like you know after they lost the second leg was like this team is great they play really good football I hope they go and win the the whole thing, yeah. which I don't think is really a thing he really says about teams that he's just lost to. He's I don't I don't recall any other time that he's been like, yeah, I hope they win, and that really put him on the map and put that team on the map after that victory. Yeah, I mean, at that at that point, no one had really heard of Bielsa, and no one really understood the quiet revolution that was happening in the Basque country. But actually. That year, they were one of the most exciting teams in Spain. They started a little bit slowly, to put it frankly. I think they they only got one point for the opening three games. And everyone was kind of thinking, ah, um, what have we got ourselves into here? to an extent and then it picked up and they didn't athletic they didn't lose for a very long time they had a number of victories in Basque derbies throughout the season up until around about March they had only well the only teams in La Liga that had lost more than them were Barcelona and Real Madrid they were free scoring they they had outscored the whole division except the big two they had basically transformed themselves from essentially being a a mid-table team that had fought off relegation and then sort of extended themselves into the this team that was taking Europe by storm, playing a really exciting brand of attacking football with a core of players who were similar to the Lisbon Lions, I suppose. All of them come from that neighbouring county. And um, it was unthinkable that a team who performed as they had the year before were going to transform themselves into this well-oiled machine that would counter-attack with pace and that they could overcome teams ahead of them. And I think what people forget about this team and when they beat Manchester United that Manchester United that year were champions of the Premier League um, and they'd won it quite convincingly the year before from memory and Athletic came absolutely dismantled this team um, with Alex Ferguson at the helm and they did it with all of them with homegrown players and I think that's a, a feat that probably won't ever be achieved again in modern football with the way it's going. But in terms of Bielsa, he transformed players. Um, Urente, in particular, was a guy that had completely transformed under Bielsa. And the, at then, the little-known Oscar de Marcos basically became one of the most dangerous attacking midfielders in La Liga. He was used quite often as a right-back and is used as a right-back today. But then he was used as a, as a centre midfielder who could break between the lines. And basically, he'd free up Nanda Herrera. He was used in tandem with Ando Taraspe as a sort of like pivot at the bottom and they completely tore Manchester United's midfield apart they hassled and harried and they had the influence of Iko Munyain who uh, at that point felt like he'd been around forever but was still only making his mark on the team and then at centre-half they had Javi Martinez who that season was one of the biggest improvements in a player I think I've seen in in my memory at least he tried he was he was a centre defensive midfielder and then he changed him into a centre-back and Martinez basically started every single attack for Bilbao and they were just I I can't describe it they were they were so fun to watch and they they made so many people fall in love with them in that Europa League run including Fergie himself it went so well at least you know in that in that first season you know it went incredibly well at Athletic but then 
he kind of he goes to Marseille. He's there for a while. He goes to Lille and Lazio, and he's there like at each each time. I think he's he's there only. I think in Lille, what he was there a few months. Then there was a dispute after he sold like all of their you know headline players, mm-hmm. and then I think at Lazio he was there something like thirteen days or something like that, and then he was gone. Like what you mentioned his stubbornness. <laughs> Why does this happen to Bielsa? Why like he comes into a club and he's there one minute and then he's gone the next? And I kind of thought this would happen at Leeds because I was like, oh my god, Leeds have been such a disaster. Yeah, the last few years, I was like, this guy is going to be gone in five minutes, and he's miraculously actually. I think it's the second longest he's been at. It's up there. I think it's the third or second longest he's been at any club. Yeah, uh, but in the jobs before that, I was I thought it was it was destined to fall apart pretty quickly because he basically just kept falling out with everyone. Yeah, I think that sums it up nicely. At Lazio, he was he was there. He was officially appointed on the sixth of of July of that year, which was twenty sixteen, and two days later on the eighth, he actually handed in his resignation and quit. The reasoning behind him leaving Lazio was because they had a short list of players that they wanted signed before a certain date. And Lazio didn't hit that date and therefore he left. So he's pretty, and you see a similar thing happening with Lille here in that he's pretty determined to have a set of players who are firstly young, um, secondly have had very little in terms of experience and thirdly um, they have a lot of potential. So I think that's why he got on well at Athletic because it was a team, a core team of players that was at that point incredibly young. They were one of the golden generations of Athletic. But if you look at Lille, he signed Nicolas Pepe, Thiago Mendes, who now plays for Leo, uh, Lyon as holding midfielder, Thiago Maia and Kevin Malkwit, who plays for Napoli. And all of those guys have gone on to have a pretty good career after uh, Bielsa. And all of them have cited him as a big influence. But he's a guy that, as I'm sure you probably you know from the start of this interview and then your background reading as well, he's a guy that likes to be left to it. He's an obsessive, as we said. He wants space to build his influence on the team. And... Lille gave him that to an extent but it didn't it didn't help that he alienated 11 players whilst doing it he told some of the key squad like Vincent Enyema Rio Mavuba and Eder who had that season scored uh, or the season before sorry scored the winning goal for Portugal in the Euros told them all that they could leave and that's what happens when you unsettle that certain amount of players and one of the reasons he left Lazio was because 15 players had left the season before and he didn't want that massive overturn of players in terms of Athletic and Marseille. Athletic, it, it, it sort of started to go badly for him in the year before, before they reached those two finals. So around about March, April time was when the, we really started to see Bielsa fatigue like kick in. Of the fight of the remaining La Liga games in that year, there were 13 left and he won three of them and then obviously blew those two finals. They actually went into the Europa League final with Atletico as favourites, bearing in mind Atletico had only just appointed Simeone at that point. And then they lost to to Barca in the in the Copa del Rey. Marseille, they they started off really well. By Christmas time they were top and they won the autumn league, as they call it, over there in France. But in the second half of the season he they just couldn't get going. They were already at a point where they were fatigued. They had Gignac up front and you can't imagine Gignac training that well under Bielsa. <laughs> and they ended up finishing fourth. So I think it's a mixture of there's fatigue there, but there's also he wants complete control. And I think that's what he's given at Leeds. And also, as much as it pains me to say, it's what Leeds needed. They needed someone to come in there and say, look, I want to do this. Give me the tools to do it. And they are to an extent. Um, obviously, they've, they've made a couple of rash errors. They didn't sign Daniel James and then they let one of their goalkeepers go. 
But, you know, they've given Bielsa what he wants. They've given him a squad that is capable of challenging for the, for the championship two years in a row now. And I think that's why he's repaid their faith somewhat over the last couple of years. I suppose it depends how you define success. Because mm. obviously people point to the lack of trophies. You mentioned how, you know, the team seems to get really close to attaining it yeah. and then fall short. So like Europa League final, they got hammered by Atletico Madrid. They lost that cup final in Spain. And then, you know, last season, Leeds were like pretty clearly the best team in the league. Yeah. And then end up, fall, they don't even finish in the top two. They end up finishing third. Like, like I said, it all depends on your definition of success. Like, does the lack of trophies matter? Or is that kind of one of the things that makes him more endearing that he's so convinced of his own methods and will do it no matter what that that it kind of makes him a bit more interesting a bit more endearing i think for me personally the fact that he hasn't won a huge amount of trophies yet still continues to live by a philosophy it's 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 massively endearing yeah and i think it also adds to the mystery of bielsa he's quite a he's, he's a person that people have influence from but they don't really know the guy if you know what I mean. He's not someone that opens up a lot. He doesn't give a lot of media interviews, but I think... Well, he doesn't give any anymore, I don't think. No. He, he stopped that years ago. Yeah. And he's a... I don't know. It's really hard to put your, your finger on, but I think the lack of trophies should never, ever detract from the fact that he has influenced the best managers around the world in the same way that it has for Minotti. And I think it sounds incredibly cliche and I almost feel cheesy saying it, but actually the probably the biggest trophy or, or he could have won is that his influence is worldwide. I thought you were going to say the friends we make along the way. <laughs> that would have been excellent. But I think he gives a platform for so many other coaches. You see Chile, as, as we were talking about, they completely changed their fortunes uh, on the platform of Bielsa. He understood that they were an ageing core and that they needed to bring in new players. He brought in Alexis, he brought in Arturo Vidal, Gary Medel, Jean Beausajour, uh, Gonzalo Yara. All of those guys were in the team that Bielsa had before he handed it over to San Paoli. Then they won those two Copa Americas. And you see now that he becomes a platform for other managers to do well. You know, Pep and Pochettino both say he's the best in the world. And regardless if he's won a trophy or not, I do think that that could be the case, just purely on philosophy and influence alone. I'm kind of interested to tease out, you know, how he's influenced the game. Because, like, if you look at the current tactical trends in the Premier League, like, there's a real emphasis on, you know, possession-based football and or pressing. Hmm. Um, so, you know, obviously Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, uh, Frank Lampard is definitely, I think, in the pressing school. Graham Potter is certainly in the possession-based kind of... Uh, method of playing football and Pochettino obviously who was you know recently replaced by Jose who most people deem to be behind the times so when when I look at like a lot of those managers and like I said we tease out okay who influenced them where did they come from you know I think on one side you have the German school which is where Klopp and Hasenhutl are kind of influenced you know by Ralph Rannick yeah Uh, and then you have the Dutch school which influenced Pep via Johan Cruyff and then would it be fair to say that the third big influencer in the current game is Bielsa, given how he's influenced, especially Maurizio Pochettino? Is he, is he the kind of is he the third one in that in that key group? I would say yes, and I think it extends more than just Pochettino. There are a few managers that have listed Bielsa as a ma- massive influence, and to name but a few, there's Sampaoli, who 
obviously took over from Chile. Eduardo Barizzo, who also managed Athletic Club, but not with the same success, um, who unfortunately at the time was trying to recover from cancer. Then there's Pochettino, as you say, and then there's Tata Martino. And interestingly, both Tata Martino and Marcelo Bielsa have stands named after them at Newell's Old Boys Stadium. So there's Marcelo Bielsa stand and also the Tata Martino stand. I think one of them is is actually, the whole stadium is actually named after Bielsa. But that's the influence that he has across the world. And you even even then you look at someone like Kike Setien, who has sort of like a mixed bag of influence, which comes from the school of Cruyff and the school of Bielsa. And Pep even says himself that his influence comes from Cruyff and Bielsa. But Bielsa got his influence from... Menotti and and uh, another Argentinian coach uh, who's called Carlos Bayardo or Bilardo, um, and he he won the Argentina uh, World Cup of Argentina in '86, and as we said, Menotti was in '78. But they are it's weird because Bilardo and Menotti are two completely different management styles, and he liked to fuse both. I suppose we might as well come to to Leeds because in uh, 2018 he replaced uh, Paul Heckingbottom, which is just such a great sentence. Marcelo <laughs> Bielsa replaced Paul Heckingbottom. Um, I know earlier we said that like he doesn't go to small clubs obviously Leeds is the biggest club in the world so you know we have to make sure we mention that um but it was a, it was a genuinely huge deal for Leeds to get him when, like, when the story broke mm. in the in the summer of 2018 I was like there's no way they actually are going to try and do it and, and as I alluded to earlier it's kind of funny that they would go from when both Leeds and him have a reputation for like falling away yeah. at the end of a campaign so like I don't know what's your kind of take on his time at Leeds like how do you how do you think he's done so far and how and all the things we've talked about have you seen them kind of um do that at Leeds as well in terms of his time at Leeds I think we've seen most of the things that we've spoken about across this podcast come out because at the start of his tenure you get Spygate which is immediately something that you focus on and I remember him having this press conference where he invited all of the press down to uh, Leeds training ground and took them through a presentation of all the teams that he's prepared against and and that sort of thing and that that there becomes the meticulous side of his preparation and then you get the ruthlessness because you get someone like Pontus Janssen who dared to question him obviously we have the massive uh, the situation with Aston Villa last season where Leeds scored a goal an Aston Villa player was down injured and Bielsa instructed his team to let Villa score the goal Janssen therefore didn't let or tried not to let them do it it was that summer that Janssen was told delay your return from pre-season look for another club you're not wanted here I think that's that's Bielsa in a nutshell really if you're not on board with me you're out and he's done it to so many people across his tenure and he'll continue to do so because there is that control you need to be in Bielsa's school of thought otherwise you're just not going to be there it's as simple as that I think in the grander scheme of things, without wanting to sound like this is a shot at Leeds, because it isn't, he's turned a team that were perennial underachievers and probably should be much higher than they were into a team now that has pace, it has power, it has flair. And if you saw any of the goals that they scored against Hull this past weekend, two of them were excellent. And two of them, one of them, which I believe was Leeds fourth, epitomised Bielsa. It was a break from the back. They broke high, they broke wide, and they, they passed through the transitions. And it was devastating. They do have... The the ability to to devastate teams leads and they score a lot of goals when they want to they've had a little bit of a dip this season already and everyone started to write them off but an actual fact i think it may have been at a point where it didn't really affect them or harm them too much and now they're starting to get a lot of players back and they look dangerous again as much as it as a as fulham fans it pains us to say it, i do think that leads this year will probably end up 
where they want to be. You know, like you, like I'm pain, at pains to admit it myself because I think they probably will go up, mm. um, and not just because it's Leeds, but because you know we've also got a team in the race trying to get promotion. Yeah, but I am also really fascinated to see how this Leeds team and how Bielsa will do in the Premier League. And we kind of got a preview of that versus Arsenal, where for much of that game, they were like super impressive and outplayed Arsenal for a lot of it in the uh, FA Cup. But I also kind of wonder if that would be like a microcosm where like they play really well, they pass it around very well, but then they just don't have the penetration Mm. in order to win enough games to stay in the Premier League. Having watched a lot of Bielsa teams over the past year, you... And knowing what the Premier League is becoming, it's sort of, the Premier League is very trappy. And by that, I mean, teams lure lure other teams into doing things that sort of hurt them. And I think Leeds under Bielsa and the way they transition and the way Bielsa teams transition could actually be quite an exciting proposition in the Premier League, especially when they're playing teams that are quite unquote open as there are in the top half of the Premier League. I, I, As you say, that that performance against Arsenal was eye-catching. They created so much and had they not had someone as useless as Patrick Bamford up front, I think they might have done all right. But I think it's a case of he knows how to transform players and get them playing a certain way and getting people on board and what I think it shows across his career, especially when his influence on, on players, that once he gets proper players in, that he'll be absolutely fine. And I do think, again, it begrudges me to say this and it's horrible, but I do think if Leeds went up, they'd be fine had they got the the investment that they needed. But they would definitely need another striker because Bamford is just he's not very good. No, I think he was linked because he, he qualifies for Ireland and I think he was linked with us um, and people were genuinely wanted him, which I think shows just how poor our striking options are at the minute because he's not a Premier League calibre. <laughs> and I, I feel like that is the biggest mark against a player. If Bielsa can't turn you into mm. a far superior player than you already were, then <laughs> then you're just not a very good player. Well, all hope's lost for Bamford in this one, unfortunately. Yeah. You got a couple of questions on Twitter for you, Ben. Matthew Parsons basically was asked you for an all-time 11. I mean, we probably don't have time to mm. do that, but who, who are the few of the players he's had the biggest influence on? In in terms of my contact with Bielsa and watching him over the, the past sort of like eight or nine years, I think there are only a few players that you could probably put in there that would have a massive effect. So obviously everyone knows he found and basically influenced Batistuta or Batigol as we like to call him as Matthew refers to in his tweet and he would definitely be in there one of the best goal scoring forwards of all time I think for me personally I would definitely put Llorente in there um, although Bielsa doesn't play with a two up front and he hates it but I think it's impossible not to include Llorente from that Bilbao team Javi Martinez as well I'd put in there at a centre half and just because he was so devastating. Um, given his current form, um, again, it's horrible and it makes me feel sick to say this. I'll probably put Calvin Phillips in there because yeah. regardless of, of our affiliations with Fulham, he's been excellent this season. He's turned into a bit of a Rolls-Royce of a defender. He uh, should be in the England team, really. Uh, especially when you're playing Declan Rice at centre mid, right? Oh, God. <laughs> and then uh, in terms of Chile, obviously you could have Arturo Vidal in there, Alexis Sanchez. Yeah. I think there are, there are too many players to name. Oh, Nicolas Pepe, if you wanted a recent one in there. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, I, li- I like the sign of this team already. Um, <laughs> this one's from uh, Stacky at Brendan Stack Seven. Yeah. Uh, how do you think he'll do in the Premier League if Leeds are promoted? We kind of already touched on this, but is there? I mean, we're, and we might even be jumping the gun. Like, who knows if they're going to go up or not? But will will his style help or hinder him? In terms of against, I think against the smaller teams, you could see it unravel because. 
this Leeds team need to be much more, they need to be much better in front of goal than they are. So if you look at their XG stats at the moment, and sorry to go all nerdy on, on you, they're currently well underperforming on XG. So they clearly, firstly, need a better striker. But what they do is create an abundance of chances, but also leave themselves slightly open at the back. You will see times, uh, and it happened on, when he was athletic coach, and it happens now when he's Leeds coaching, that they are often left two on two at the back with strikers. And he basically count like he relies on his defensive midfielder to stop counters at source. So I think what he needed, what he would need to do is just tune that up slightly. But I do think it would help them on the overall in that he is such a transitional manager. He focuses so much on counter-attacking and finding space and exploiting it. And um, that rotation of players, the the permanent movement we spoke about and the incisiveness of the passing, I think would cause a lot of teams a lot of trouble, especially if they're as open as someone like a Chelsea are this season or definitely Arsenal. I think that both of them could probably succumb to Leeds had Leeds had a decent striker this season. I feel like Leeds have kind of missed the boat in terms of last season was the season to get promoted mm. because like you look around, I, I feel like Leeds would make mincemeat of some of the teams right now because like some of the quality isn't great even though there's plenty of good players around but i don't understand like the quality just isn't good there's a lot of like teams where i'm like i don't know it's like it's almost like the fulham problems like i don't know if they're any good yeah. i don't know if southampton are good i don't know if wofford are good i don't know if like uh, west ham definitely are not good but you know there's plenty of of teams like that and i feel like Leeds de- definitely i think maybe could have done well this season i don't know if the same stars will align next season i'm just looking at the table now are they better than Bournemouth? Could they beat Bournemouth? Yeah, probably. Even though Bournemouth have just got a good result against Chelsea, they could definitely beat them. Could they beat Villa? Absolutely, they could beat Villa. Are they better than Norwich? Probably. Watford? I mean, they've just beaten Liverpool, but are they really that good? No. West Ham, Brighton and Newcastle? I think Leeds could give them all a good game. I, I totally agree with you. I do think that perhaps they have missed the boat and last season was the year to get promoted because I think there are a handful of teams in there that they're, they're better than. I think everything, everyone up to West Southampton in 13th place, they could probably give a game to at the moment. Right, I'll just have one last quick question um, because I've kept you for far too long, Ben. Okay. But will we ever see him at a at a really big club? You know, not not Leeds big, obviously, but like a really big club. Like, I, I don't understand, like, why don't Barcelona look at this guy and think, actually, you know, his style fits. He's obviously a very good manager. Like, mm. why don't we get him in, you know? So why hasn't a big team gotten them yet? I think the word that comes into it is control. Is that you won't get a team that is so-called massive super club in the whole of Europe that will give control to one guy. They're not the Oakland Raiders. But there's no Oakland Raiders team out there in, in, yeah. in European football that would just give one guy a, a whole war chest and say, go and do it. Like, there's way too many politics involved. And I don't think he's the kind of guy that wants politics. And if he does, he wants them all to be one way. I think you'll get that with a smaller club. I hate to call Athletic small and I hate to call Marseille small, but they're clubs that are, they, they buy into an ideology. And... Um, I think that that's what he he wants and he craves. He wants to be appreciated. He wants to be adored. And both clubs do that. And I think Leeds do that. And that's why he wants it. He wants to get people pulling in the same direction and buy into his philosophy. And you do that with a smaller club with sort of big aspirations and Leeds Athletic and, and Marseille all had that. Yeah, I think we should point out, like we're obviously talking them as quote unquote smaller clubs, but they are actually massive clubs in their own right. All those teams <laughs> have, have huge histories and a lot of background that like Lazio is not a small club. You know, like Lille, I didn't even know Lille existed until like 2004. I think they played Shelburne in the UEFA Cup that year. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have known about it, about them other than that. But in general, 
like these clubs actually have huge standing in football. So we shouldn't, but they're not part of what you would call the elite. They're not no. winning league titles and so on and so forth. They're the, they're the tier below, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think we've covered Bielsa pretty well. Um, you know, I said before we came on air that there was no way we were ever going to cover everything. I think that would take like a whole series of podcasts to get right. through everything on on Bielsa. But I think we've we've covered our bases here. So um, yeah, where can actually people follow you on Twitter and listen to your podcast and stuff? So you can follow me on Twitter at benjarman underscore underscore, and then you can find me on Fulhamish uh, every Monday uh, at Fulhamish Pod on Twitter. Fulhamish is available to download on Acast and uh, the iPhone app as well. Ben, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Marcelo Bielsa. No worries. Thank you so much for having me.